Welcome to What She Said, A Thrill of Hope. I'm Amanda Wood, and today is Wednesday, December 7th. Welcome back, everyone. Today we are going to be looking at Luke 1, 34 through 38. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we are Remembering that yesterday we were with Mary when she is just sitting in her house or whatever. She's going about her business and the angel Gabriel just appears to her and lets her know that she is about to have a child. She's going to have the son of God, he clarifies further today. Um, And Mary is she's questioning, right? She's wondering what is going on here. But first, I wanted to point out that once again, we see that the text is emphatic, that Mary is in in fact a virgin. She has not known a man. um, And this conception was absolutely nothing less than a miracle of the Holy Spirit. The text really, really, really wants to let us know that this is a miracle of God. It's different than Elizabeth who has conceived naturally, though still somewhat miraculously, in that it was not expected to happen of natural um, natural means due to her age. But it did happen by like, God's natural means that Mary, hers is not happening any way anyone has ever been conceived before. This is completely and exclusively a work of the Holy Spirit inside of Mary. But of course, this is confusing. Mary asks, how can this be since I do not know a man? Um, She doesn't know him in the biblical sense, of course. We're all following with that. She's not been in a situation that would lead to her having a child. So she's questioning and she says, how, how? And Gabriel answers. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Just like Zacharias, Mary asks a question. I've heard a lot of people say, why was Zacharias punished so severely? Yet Mary just receives an answer. My thought in this is that we can tell by the reaction of Gabriel that Mary asks her question in a spirit of faith, while Zacharias asks his in total disbelief. Mary was confused. Her question was clarifying the details. She knew that a natural pregnancy was not possible for her. But what we know here is that she did not doubt that God has his ways of doing what he says he will. 
we can tell that this was the intention of Mary versus the total disbelief of Zacharias because of the response of Gabriel. Gabriel's response to the two questions um, isn't the confusing part. It's, it's the answer in and of itself. By responding to Zacharias with a punishment before his disbelief, but responding to Mary by simply answering her question shows that Gabriel knew the contents of their heart. Gabriel knew from God which one was operating in belief and which one was operating in disbelief. Mary just said, could you explain further? Zacharias said, that's not possible. And that's the difference between these two questions. In the verse, Gabriel answers Mary that the power of the Lord will overshadow her. Overshadow means, it's, it's from the same word where it means to cover with a cloud. So this brings to mind um, the Shekinah glory, which is the name of the cloud of God's presence, which led the Israelites out of Egypt and appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. It is a visible manifestation of the glory of God. We see it often in the Old Testament. We see the cloud of Shekinah glory throughout Ezekiel when it, uh, the presence of God is shown as being in the temple, but then leaving the temple and departing from Israel. And we see the cloud of Shekinah glory again in Revelation, where Jesus at his second coming returns on the clouds. This is all using the same word to um, indicate that this is the visible manifestation of God, his glory and his presence. Technically in this verse, the angel is prophesying um, not a virgin birth as we typically call it. That would actually entail other sort of technical things that I'll let you kind of put two and two together on and I probably don't need to get into. But the angel is actually prophesying a virgin conception. She will conceive a child by the Holy Spirit coming upon her. She will actually birth the child by natural means. This manner of conception um, differentiates Jesus from all others. There have been, as we've pointed out with Elizabeth and Sarah and Hannah, other miraculous conceptions where a woman who previously couldn't have a child for various reasons um, had their womb opened and a child of promise was given. In this moment, it's different because this is only a woman and she's not being given a child by any natural means. Jesus is holy. He's set apart as God's son. Again, this is about a miracle and a confirmable heavenly father versus an earthly father. This is not about it being unholy to be born of natural marital relations. It's simply a reason to show Jesus as set apart and the true son of God. Calling him the son of God had bigger implications on a Jewish audience than it sometimes does to us. We think of this word very biologically, but for the Jewish audience hearing it at the time, they would have realized that son of God means equal to God. Inherent in the title of Jesus, he is being called equal to God. It's a claim to divinity to call him this. Calling him the son of God recognizes his nature from all of eternity. 
In verse 36, as if to further assure Mary, the angel also tells her of the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth. Miracles upon miracles, blessings upon blessings, because, verse 37, with God, nothing shall be impossible. And I love that. And the more literal translation of the original Greek of that passage is, for no word of God shall be powerless. God will absolutely perform what he says. You can always trust in the promises of God. He will never let you down because his word will never come up powerless. If he says it, it is fully powerful and will fully come to pass. Gabriel's words also call to mind another promise of God to Sarah in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18:13, it says, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? In verse 14, it, it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. What God is telling Abraham and Sarah in this passage is that nothing is impossible for him. I will give you the child that I promised. I think that Mary was meant to know these words as well and also find another confirming example that whatever God promises, he will complete. The angel was giving her plenty of reasons to trust in the promises of God. And I think she received this extra um, this extra amount of um, information because she came in a spirit of faith. God doesn't have to prove himself to us, but I think he is very kind and very loving to give us the information that he feels that we need when he sees us truly responding to him with trust as our father. Beyond what God is promising to Mary through Gabriel here, just to marry herself that she is going to have this son of promise, this was also the Lord fulfilling his promise to all of Israel and the world since the beginning of creation. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. So we're tempted to think that God has forgotten us when time passes. We are tempted to wonder if his promises are actually true. We're tempted to doubt that he's ever going to come through for us. But this assertion from Gabriel is not just that God will be able to place his child within the womb of Mary. It's the fulfillment of a promise for the long-awaited Messiah. God promised more than just Mary in this moment. And Mary's response was to immediately agree to do whatever God needed her to do. She is nothing more in this moment than his humble servant. She will accept whatever he instructs. We don't know when Jesus was actually physically conceived within Mary. It may have been while the angel spoke to her or just after. But Mary was already fully laying her entire self down in front of the Lord. That I am your maidservant. Whatever you need, I will do. There's nothing that she was going to withhold of herself from the Lord, whatever he was asking for. He was asking for her whole self, her whole body, and she was laying it before him without any doubt. And it doesn't look like with 
without, it looks like she did it without any hesitation. She had questions, but they were not doubting questions. They were simply questions. This should always be our posture before the Lord. No matter what he needs, no matter what he asks for, we are never more safe and cared for than when we are resting in his will. We will not find a better life than the one we will find by following his path, no matter the difficulties that we might face. I know I'd far prefer to be in tough times and places with the Lord, fighting my battles alongside of him, with him at the helm, than in the most comfortable worldly situation by my own control. Eternity looms in front of us all. Today is not all there is for anyone. There is a tomorrow, and there is a tomorrow with God and his plan for the ages, and his way is the only way which leads to life in this place and the next. Oswald Chambers says, The passion of Christianity comes from deliberately signing away my own rights and becoming a bondservant of Jesus. That's the lesson we get from Mary in this passage. Lay everything down at the feet of Christ. All that you have, all that you are, all that you hope, and all that you can ever be. And he will do great things with all of it. I want to change gears here a little bit and um, shift out of the passage that we are in for today and instead take a peek over at the two genealogies which are included in the Gospels for the line of Jesus. I think it's an interesting time to do it because we've just been told here he is he's being conceived he exists as a human man now god is his father um let's make clear that joseph is not that's done right here in this passage so let's look now at the two separate genealogies one is in matthew 1 1 through 17 and one is in luke 3 23 through 38. One thing you might notice upon a very like passing examination of these two genealogies is that they do not match. It's believed that in Matthew, what he's writing is a genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, Jesus' legal line as the adoptive son of Joseph. This genealogy in Matthew would have been written for a Jewish audience and the way that they understood legal lineage. Through his legal line that this is showing through Joseph, Jesus had a claim to the throne of David, as this line travels from David through Solomon. And Solomon was heir to the throne following David. In Luke 3, 23 through 38, we are likely looking at the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. Remember that Luke is written for a Gentile audience who would have understood lineage differently than a Jewish audience. They would have understood the lineage through the mother. This lineage still establishes Jesus as being through the line of David, but by his son Nathan instead of Solomon. That's okay because any son of David, in fact, has a legal claim to the throne of David. Luke 3.23 says that Jesus was only thought to be the son of Joseph, and it replaces Mary's name with Joseph, which would have been a very normal process in the ancient world. An ancient Greek reader could have read this passage and known through the context that this was in fact Mary's lineage and not Joseph's. 
One possible translation from the Greek in this verse would show this passage passage as saying that people supposed Jesus to be the son of Joseph, but he was actually of Eli. And Eli was the father of Mary. So since it was Mary's son, it would have immediately gone back to her father. It would not have been um, rare that even if Joseph was the biological son of Um, or sorry, if Jesus was the biological son of Joseph, it would not have been rare for a genealogy who meant to show the mother's line to still have used the father's name in place of the mother. It's just what was done in the ancient world. Now, there is a problem for Joseph's genealogy, Joseph's lineage that's shown in Matthew um, and the idea that it might have been shown as Jesus's legal claim to the throne of David. There's something that I find kind of interesting, which is referred to as um, the Jeconiah link. It presents a problem for Joseph's line because King Jeconiah is in there and he was cursed by God in Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, so that none of his descendants were ever allowed to sit on the throne of David again. He was the last king in the line of Solomon. Some believe that this means the Matthew genealogy is showing that Jesus would not have had a claim to the throne were he the true son of Joseph because of Jeconiah. Some believe that this still shows his claim through Solomon's line, and it's okay because he isn't biologically related to Jeconiah. My point in looking at both of these genealogies is just to point out that um, we know they're different. It's really not such a problem that they differ from one another, and there are lots of different reasons that this might be the case. While we might not know for sure what they are, it's not a total mystery why we would be looking at two different genealogies and two different lineages of Jesus in the two separate Gospels. Whatever the true case is with these genealogies, it is good to remember that putting too much stock in an ancient genealogy can be a fool's errand. We shouldn't spend a lot of our time or stake our faith on what is said about the lineages of Jesus in these Gospels. In 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul actually warns not to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. He states a similar thing again in Titus 3.9. The important thing for us to remember here is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the branch from the stump of Jesse, the long-promised Savior, and the whole of Scripture exists to show us that, even if we don't really understand how it's doing it at any given point. We should follow Paul's advice, and we should never allow a few records of disputed understanding undermine the truth that we know about Jesus as the Son of God. That's all for today. I hope you have a great one. 